Hear the word of God from Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dwelt, dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God. And there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word, that we have the sure and steady confidence that what you have written, what has been inspired by your Holy Spirit written before us has been accurately and well preserved, that it is trustworthy, that these ancient words Though old, continue to live and speak, for your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, that all scripture is God-breathed. And so we know that today we have heard, and we ask that we would hear, our ears would be unplugged, our eyes would be unblinded, that our hearts would be made soft And now, Father, I pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak this Sunday morning? To us together gathered, Lord, speak. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. 
to give you a little bit of remembrance, two weeks ago we opened up Joel chapter 1 and it was a, uh, the, the circumstances were a locust plague that had swallowed the land. This plague of wave after wave after wave of locusts that were consuming the crops were, was a, a judgment, it was an experience of affliction, of trial, because of the connection that people, everyday people had to the land. And it seemed as though with every wave of locust, another crop was destroyed. Another area of trust was removed so that God's people would be reminded that ultimately what they needed and what we need is the Lord himself. And oftentimes seasons of affliction and of trial are brought into our lives for expressly that purpose. To remind you, as the writer of Ecclesiastes would have us remember, that life without Christ is meaningless. We are brought into days of desolation, surrounded, it seems like, in a culture that's devastated by the effects of sin. And perhaps, if you're aware of it, Your own life can bear the fingerprints, the thumbprints of your own fall, your own rebellion, your own disobedience and dishonoring of God. You can remember places where your selfishness has destroyed relationships. You can see places where your addictions have chased you away from the people and the things that you love the most. You can see the devastation inwardly and outwardly that has accompanied your own sin. And what happens when you have a bunch of people who have fallen, who have all have pursued their own way? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we all get together, what we sow is not triumph. What we build is not blessing. But in fact, it is the exact opposite. The cultures and the systems that so often we build are ones that do not bring the salvation we would have. And this is the myth of secular progressivism, by the way. Secular progressivism would tell you that as long as rational, reasoning, sharp-headed people get together with all of the advancements that science has lent us, that we would arrive at a progressive state that is better than where we came from. But the key to secular progressivism is the the bleaching out of all reference to God, and not even reference to God, but surrender and submission to God and His Word. And it's a myth. And, And worse than a myth, it's a lie. Secular progressivism, as our current state will tell us, sows destruction only to reap it in greater measure. And for many, many reasons, as many or many as as this is an example of this devastating flood of fallenness, that sin in and of itself is destructive, and then. Perhaps more concerning, not only is the destruction that sin reaps, but there is 
the abiding wrath of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is a current state of affairs where a state of affairs where God gives people over to their sin and we see devastating wave after wave after wave where we believe that we're moving on ahead and we're actually tearing each other down. This has been the story of humanity left to ourselves. You can just read the very beginnings of the book in Genesis chapter after from Genesis chapter three to Genesis chapter 11. We're culminating with the Tower of Babel, where they're going to come together and build a name for themselves. And this seems to be the secular project that is only proven to be crumbling all around us. It crumbles around us as we sow insanity in our culture. As we sow a disregard to how God has explicitly made the world and men and women in it. As we seek to thrust off all references and submission to God himself. Only to find on the other side of that. An unavoidable void. That if life is life, it is meaningless without him. It's a very bleak introduction. Welcome to Blaney Baptist Church. My name's Jacob. I'm the pastor here. What hope do we then have? We see wars and rumors of wars, even a war popping up over the weekend in Israel. Pray for Israel. What is our hope then? Certainly, as we've tried to say in many different ways, is that we have to look away from ourselves. For your own personal desolations, your own personal devastations, your own personal brokenness of relationships and of dreams and of inward, outward, you, you are not the solution. You're, you're not the Mr. Fix-It or Mrs. Fix-It. The same can be said for our current cultural winds. That we are not the ones who can fix it. In Joel chapter 2, we began with this future looking ahead of the day of the Lord that is coming. And we talked about how the day of the Lord is not a, a necessarily just a chronological date on God's calendar. You know, he walks by the fridge of heaven Every day he says, don't forget the day of the Lord. That's not how the day of the Lord works. The day of the Lord is a, uh, a kairos time. It is a, it is a pointed time where the inbreaking of God into the fallen world to further his purposes. And so the day of the Lord is a already and not yet reality. There's the day of the Lord, the beginning of chapter 2, which is Looking ahead then was looking ahead to a future invasion from a foreign army. Probably the Babylonians, maybe. We don't know the dating of Joel exactly. And then in the end of chapter 2 that we just, I just read, the day of the Lord is ahead. So there's a day of the Lord that is coming or is present, and there's a day of the Lord that's ahead. And it's in the same way, the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness and the wrath of God will ultimately fully be revealed at the day of the Lord. 
the blessings of the kingdom of God for God's people who have been brought into new life in Christ and a new citizenship in Jesus. We're experiencing every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus today, Christian. But that will be a greater realized truth at the final day. At the final resurrection when the new heavens and the new earth are established and the new Jerusalem comes down from above. The kingdom of God is already and not yet. The day of the Lord is already and not yet. And so for the Christian, we should be longing for this full realization of the day of the Lord. Because it means the full vindication of God's people. When all of God's promises and all of God's purposes are brought up to the surface so that everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth can see that it's all summed up in Jesus. To God be the glory, like Philippians chapter 2. It's all going to be drummed up. How How then ought we to live in this tension, this already, not yet? What is God meaning to do with fallen people Here's the target. That God gives us His Spirit to restore us to representational relationship. There's three R's in there, so hopefully you can get some alliteration. God gives us His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, to restore us to representational Relationship, all those are important. That's the, that's the target of the wall today. Okay? God gives us the Spirit to restore us to representational relationship. Our text begins this, this flip. Right? God's people have heard, seen, heard the warning of blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, and they themselves have responded in repentance. That when we think about the day of the Lord and we think about all of the the signals in this world of the coming day of the Lord, like a war, it is an opportunity for us to freshly repent and turn and cling to the promises of Jesus. I don't have time to unpack all of that again, but there's a turn. God makes a promise in verse 20. I'm going to remove this army from you. And then he turns to the land. So 21 through 27, there is rest. This is all language of restoration and of reversal. Fear not, O land. Be glad for the Lord has done great things. Notice the parallel between the end of chapter. I mean, the end of verse 20 and the end of verse 21, where this northern army has come. And he has done, they have done great things. Now here in verse 21, for the Lord has done great things. And you can be assured of this, that the great things that the Lord does are greater than any forces of of darkness, any forces of judgment that might be rolling out upon creation. The the great things that God is doing uh, and will do are greater than anything else. Fear not, O land, fear not, O beasts of the field. He's directing this this language of the the reversal, the, 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 the absence of fear is directed at creation first. That creation itself is going to be transformed ultimately and fully by what God is purposing to do finally and fully in Jesus. Creation will be transformed by This renewal, 
One of my favorite scenes is, uh, and I hear it, I hear it more than I watch it these days. I've said this before, I know, uh, but it's at the end of the Lion King. Any Lion King fans? It's a... Ah, opinion. Okay. Um, that. <laughs> Anyways, it's it's one of the one we have like three DVDs that are on repeat in my car, and that's one of them. But at the very very end, right? You remember the story? Uh, the, the bad king has come in. He's brought the hyenas in. They've consumed the pride lands. And it's all devastation. It's all devastation. And then when the rightful king, the son comes. And he ascends and he is, issues out this epic roar. It's almost as though it's like Revelation chapter 19. Where the word of God comes out of Jesus' mouth like a double-edged sword. And all of a sudden, it's not just all of the lions get better and they, they're walking around awesome, but everything, right? You remember it? There's, and there's a great soundtrack in the background. And all of a sudden, where there's desolation and dust, there's flourishing savannas and the trees are green and the flowers are blooming, that when Christ right comes, there will be a full realization of the renewal of creation. There's going to be a lot going on in between now and then, right? This world will be baptized by fire, I think Peter tells us in 2 Peter. But that fire will be a renewing fire. So that the new heavens and the new earth will be a heavens and an earth that you're not going to be sitting on a cloud for eternity. Let Scripture shape what you see. So he addresses this promise of renewal to creation and to the land the word for land and the word for earth are the same in Hebrew. Verse 23, be glad, O children of Zion, that he turns his attention to God's people who have, now, who have gone through the desolations and they've gone through the devastations. They've suffered. They've, they've been in the bleak landscape of the foreign armies coming and consuming and even taking the people into exile, living as pilgrims in a land that is not yet fully their own. He says, be glad, rejoice, for God has given the early rain for your vindication, for your righteousness, that when God brings renewal to creation, it will be to the Christian's vindication, that your faithfulness in these days, Christian, where you've been faithful to Christ, where you've suffered for the name of Jesus, where you've been faithful to love Him and serve Him and to share the gospel with your neighbors, that all of God's promises will be vindicated in that day. All of the early mornings where you're in the Word of God and you're praying and you don't know if God's hearing, you're praying for the same person over and over and over again and they've yet to see their heart turn. All of the moments where you've turned away from sin, you've fled temptation to cling to Jesus. All of the places where your name has been drugged through the mud by unbelieving co-workers and unbelieving family members and misguided church members. You will be vindicated when Christ comes. That in the renewal of all things, there will be vindication. And so right now, notice... Between this already and not yet, because you have the not yet promise, you can be glad today. Don't miss this. In God's renewal, you can be glad today. And by being glad today, believing in the promise of what God is going to do, 
what he is doing, what he's going to do. You become what the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, that you will be like lights shining in a corrupt and perverse generation. So be glad. And then there's all this imagery of abundance and of restoration and the the reversal of all that the locusts had done. God's going to repay them, he says. I will restore to you, in verse 25, the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You will eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise. That God's renewal will lead to greater praise. But how will this happen? Sounds great. God's going to keep his promise. God's going to renew all things. He's going to renew his people. Verse 28, the, the reception. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. There is a reception of the very spirits of God. And the arrival of the Spirit of God is the marker. This is the delineating point for the day of the Lord. Who, quick quiz, where else, where do we see this passage in its entirety quoted in the New Testament? Acts 2, gold stars out there for you. What happens in Acts 2? Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? Spirit falls, right? God pours out His Spirit. The same language of pouring is not only quoted, but it's spoken by Peter in a sermon that what you've seen and heard has been poured out from God. Over and over and over again in the book of Acts and elsewhere, the Spirit's arrival is described as a pouring out. Almost like a waterfall of God's power is being poured out. And this is the very Spirit who is hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Spirit's over the waters. And now he's coming. Where sin has decreated, the spirit is recreating. Where sin is decreated, has decreated, the spirit is recreating. It's by the power of God that renewal is happening. By the power of God with us that restoration is happening. Only God can take that which is dead and make it alive. Only God can take rebellious sinners, turn our hearts and make us alive so that we now are able and longing to love Him. Only God can take children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 1, I mean chapter 2 verse 1, and turn them into the very sons and daughters of God. That is a work of God's sovereign, powerful spirit. We cannot affect it on our own. This type of renewal, this type of transformation is dependent upon the very power of God that said, let there be light and there was light. Don't misunderstand the difficulty before us. Don't misunderstand the level of devastation before us. You might bemoan what's happening in our culture, but I promise you that is the tip of the iceberg. When you push it down into people's hearts, The devastation of sin runs deeper and affects more than you could imagine. And we need desperately the power of God to change us 
and to work in our friends, in our neighbors, in our communities, in our world. God pours out, Jesus says, or the John chapter 3, verse 34, which is that passage with Jesus and Nicodemus and says that the, the Son pours out the Spirit without measure. And in fact, this is the very promise of the, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. The blessing to the nations is now that the Holy, the Holy Spirit goes not just to the Israelites, not just to the prophets, not just to the priests, but the Spirit by the work of Jesus who takes upon Him the curse who takes upon him our sin, that Christ bears our sin so that he could give us new life. He gives us new life by giving us himself and his spirit. So we receive the spirit. And this is the distinction between the old and the new. There were people in the Old Testament that had the spirit of God, but usually it was Moses or the prophets or a king who was anointed for a season like Saul. But you get a, a preamble of this, a prologue. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 28, that there were some in the camp that are prophesying in the camp of Israel. They're prophesying, they're speaking, inspired by God. And Joshua is telling Moses, Shut them up. Shh. And this is Moses' response. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? Would all the people, all the Lord's people, receive the spirit? That desire of Moses finds prophetic utterance in Joel chapter 2 and fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, where God pours out His Spirit upon all of His people. It's important here that we don't press our current controversies into Old Testament texts or even New Testament quoted texts. This scripture is not about who gets to preach in church. It's heard it misapplied numerous times. When the, when the language of prophecy here is a language of the Spirit, it's a language of the reception of the Spirit, that every believer in Jesus Christ receives the Spirit of God. For you cannot say, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So this is a relationship that's been transformed, that the the fountains of God have been opened up for all of his people to be fixated on function here is to miss the point. It's not so much about function, it's about a newness of relationship, an unmediated relationship with God, that God by his spirit is restoring us to right relationship. And so it's in this as the first John chapter two talks about that we've received an anointing. And so we have true knowledge of God. And that same passage talks about how you don't need teachers. And it's really a, a mirror of what God promises in Jeremiah chapter 31, that they will all all know the Lord, that there will be no one to teach them to know the Lord because all of God's people will receive the Spirit of God and be in direct relationship with Him. 
And that's a question for you today. Do you have a direct, vital, living relationship with God Almighty? By means of Jesus Christ and His Spirit. Are you alive today? Or are you still spiritually dead? That's the question of relationship. Relationship is those who have been made alive to Christ. Renewed and restored by the work of God's Spirit in them. So that they have been born again. Changed inwardly. Our hearts made alive to God. As the prophet Ezekiel prophesies that our hearts of stone would be removed. Hearts that are hardened and calloused to God. That the heart of stone would be removed so a heart of flesh may dwell there. At the very center of our being. A heart of flesh that is sensitive to God. Beating for God. Made alive by God. Loving God because we have been loved by Him. Do you have that kind of living relationship? Or are you stuck in some formality? Are you stuck in going through the motions? Do you have a living, loving presence of God in you, in Christ? Because this promise of the Spirit is received, Galatians 3.14, received through faith. So we're restored to right relationship. And if if the imagery is of prophecy and seeing visions, even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit that there's an outwardness to it. We'll get there in a second. So we've seen reversal. We've seen renewal. We've seen the reception of the spirit bringing restoration Restoring us to relationship with God where there's no longer a priest offering sacrifices. There's no longer a priest standing in between God's people and him. But there is a direct relationship by means of the spirit. This is the doctrine of the priest or the believer, by the way, that you have in Christ. You have received the spirit of God where you relate to God directly. I am not an intermediary. I am a a co-pilgrim that has been called to this work to help stir you up, help coach you up, help shepherd you along. But you relate to God. So the most important question isn't what the preacher says about you. The most important question is, what does God say about you? And then renewal. Verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How does what God has accomplished for us in Jesus come to be applied to our lives? It comes to be applied by the calling of the Holy Spirit who, and, and then our response of faith to Him. You must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Would you be restored? Would you be renewed? Would you come into new relationship with God? Call upon the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord is not some generic God. It's not enough to say, well, I believe in God. It's not enough to say that God's been so good to me. When the Apostle Paul appropriates this verse, when he takes it up in Romans chapter 10, 
He, uses, he quotes it. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he uses the word Lord, Yahweh, the title of the Old Testament covenant God. And he's referring to Jesus Christ, the son of Nazareth. I mean, the, 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 from Nazareth, the son of Mary, who was crucified, buried, dead, risen from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. If you would be saved, you must call upon the name of Jesus. And by calling upon the name of the Lord, that's exactly what I mean. Saying, I cannot save myself. I see my own brokenness. I see all the devastation that I have brought in my life. I see all the devastation that has come upon me in this fallen world. And I know that I cannot fix it in any way. I have to call out to Christ. Christ alone. Christ alone can save you. If you would experience all of the newness of Christ today, all of the hope of Christ for tomorrow and for eternity, call out to Jesus to save you. Exact. Say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I need what you have done and are doing to save me. Would you come save me? And the beautiful truth of Scripture In fact, just grab me by the shoulders. Is that everyone who comes to him, he will not cast aside. You should not fear that you are too bad. You should not fear that your track record is too full of potholes and all the ways, all the things that you've done. I don't know him. He knows them. And scripture says that God demonstrates his love in this, in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you imagine the great fathomless love of God that he saw all of your garbage? He saw it down to the root that you can't even acknowledge today or maybe even see today. He saw it. He saw it. And Jesus said yes to the father's plan. So that he who knew no sin became sin. He became my sin and he became your sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that we might be in right relationship with God. Don't turn your eyes away from the Savior for there's none other. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It is only the name of Christ. Run to him today. Okay, I want to give you two so what's and one of the so what's has some little so what's underneath it so what one you are in relationship with god having called upon the name of the lord jesus surrendered your life to him his spirit now dwells in you and is upon his presence in your life that you are considered a son or daughter of god You are not in the same way a son or a daughter of God just because you're born. Just because you're, um, um, you know, made in the image of God, which you are, praise God. But we have been given in Romans chapter 8 verse 15 and Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 that we've been given the spirit of God's son. The spirit of adoption to be in relationship with him. That is the spirit of God who makes that relationship happen and be possible and sustain it. So are you in relationship with God? I've already asked you that. I'm going to ask you maybe six more times. Are you in relationship with God? 
You've been given the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Intimate, relational names to the God of glory. Can you imagine the relationship that has been blood bought for us? That we can call the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, maker of the heavens and the earth. We can come to him close, near as a little child and say, Father, that is a gift of God's spirit. And I want you to have that kind of relationship where you can live and you can live in this broken world and sometimes feel like this world takes you across its knee, snaps you like a twig, and that you can run to your father. And you could say, Father, help be near. And that you would know the consolation of the nearness of God. Number two, we're in relationship with God for a purpose, to glorify him, to enjoy him. But just like Adam was made in relationship with God to represent him, you are brought into relationship with God to represent him. It's inevitable. Jesus said, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. You represent Jesus. How do you represent Jesus? This is so what? Let me read you one passage about transformation. And 2 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19. And we all with unveiled face beholding, seeing the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image. So we're being made into the image of Jesus from, from one degree of glory to another for this. Now, no, 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 no. Notice. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Would you be transformed from one degree of glory to another? Meaning you're growing up as you are beholding and looking upon Jesus. You're becoming, becoming more and more like Him. You're like Him in your heart and the way that you love, and the, the affections that you cherish. You're like Him in your mind. You're being renewed by the renewing of your mind. And you're becoming like him in your will, with what you do, with your choices and your life. Head, heart, hands being conformed into the image of Jesus by the spirit of God's work in your life. How, are you, how will you represent God? One, your spiritual gifts. I don't have time to open all that up right now, but we will. Okay. Your spiritual gifts, God's spirit in you, Christian, has gifted you in a way for the sake of his body and for the sake of the world, for the sake of his work in the world. Two, your spiritual fruit. My kids have this song that we have to play every night about, it's a funny song about uh, the fruits of the spirit. Fruits of the spirit, it's not a watermelon. It's, it's love, joy, peace. Oh, that dropped. I know, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a funny thing. Sarah Beth will send you a link later. But that you dim, you represent Jesus by representing the gifting in his life, owning up to it, saying, God has given this to you to do. You take no pride over it. It's a gift of grace. You demonstrate his fruit everywhere you go. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. 
That those things, as God's Spirit radiates in you, as you're being conformed into the image of Jesus, those things begin to flow out of you. Could you imagine the transformation in your home if it's marked by love and joy and peace and patience all the way down to self-control? If you, in the context of your home, whatever your home is like, could you imagine what it looks like in your workplace as you represent Jesus as His Spirit The fruit of the spirit of being are flowing out of you in love and joy and peace and patience all the way down to self-control. What if your co-workers see you as the one you've got this really, really, really sour curmudgeon guy next to you in the the cubicle or the office or whatever desk, whatever you got, whatever you got going on Zoom. I don't know what you guys got going on. And rather than, like everybody else, kind of shooting sharp barbs at that guy, you extend grace. What if there's a marked difference in you by the way that you relate to people? That you represent God in your spiritual gifts, you represent God in your spiritual fruit, and you represent God by spirit-led lives. And the best thing I can say about a spirit-led life That you take the priorities of the triune God and they become your number one priority. Jesus said it. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, God, right? Not you. You don't seek first you. If you are claiming the name of Jesus, trying to live for him in this world, but you are still, still living for number one yourself, You are not representing Christ as you could be. So, so what? We'll be talking more about spiritual gifts in the future, but prayerfully consider 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12. How might God have gifted you? Where are your likes? What are your passions? What are you good at? What gives you life? And there might be some indicators there. Take the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And then take an inventory of your day tomorrow and the next day and say, am I, are any of these lacking in my life? Lay your life before the Lord. Ask, ask people around you, but be careful. Do that 360 analysis and ask your, you ask your husband, ask your wife, ask your kids, ask your, some of your coworkers that might be sympathetic to it and see what they say. And then finally make the self examination by your time by your talent, by your treasure, whose kingdom are you seeking? Seek first the kingdom of God. And all the stuff that you need will be added to you. God restores us. He restores us. Gives us his spirit to restore us to representational relationship. Relationship something that we enjoy, but it's something that we exercise. So today, I want you to be in right relationship with God in Christ. But I promise my desire for that to happen pales in comparison to God's desire for that to happen. So would you come and trust Jesus? If you have never surrendered your life to Christ, if you've never called upon the name of Christ to save you, do not let another moment go. If you do it from your seat, you come up here and talk to me. I would love to pray with you as you wrestle with, it, with that decision. But don't let another day go. Christian, follower of Jesus, 
Whose kingdom are you serving? Whose kingdom are you seeking? Ask God the question. And may we be a people of one heart, one mind, as we seek the kingdom of God above all else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy toward us in Christ. Thank you for the beautiful reception of the Spirit. So much we could say about the Holy Spirit's ministry in us and amongst us. But we thank you, O Lord, that you have not left us as orphans, but you have given us your spirit, your very presence, that you have come and made your abode. You've lived in us, that now we individually in Christ and corporately as your body are described as the temple of the living God. Would we represent you so that people might see Christ, might hear of Jesus, and that your kingdom would be furthered through us. Father, I pray explicitly if there are any who have never yielded, who have never abandoned themselves to run to Jesus, would you draw them by your spirit today that they might be restored to new relationship, right relationship in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.